Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Woo! You know you're a boss when you do it from memory. Listen, we're not in Nehemiah anymore, baby. All right? There we go. Well, good morning and welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And um, it is my joy to be preaching the Word of God to you this morning. Before I do, I just want to let you know we had a fantastic um, members meeting last Sunday evening. And uh, since then, we have made an offer on a building, and that offer has been accepted. Yeah. And I was, I was reminded by someone who did math, and not, that wasn't me, that um, surprisingly that our accepted offer was received 52 days after our giving Sunday. And that's significant if you remember from the book of Nehemiah because Nehemiah finished the wall in 52 days. So we are, this is a God thing, right? God, God likes to tell the same story. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, we're working out all the details right now. We're probably going to close within 30 to 60 days, and then we've got some remodeling that we're going to do, but the Lord has provided us with a building, and this looks like it's the next step for us as a church, and we are incredibly excited about it. So just so you know, it's a 400-seat sanctuary, plenty of classrooms, plenty of kid space, plenty of parking. It's centrally located five minutes from here um, towards Bettendorf, and... Um, on and on and on I could go. Full kitchen. It's, you'll see pictures. You'll have a lot, of, lot to hear about it. But we are uh, incredibly excited about it. And so we want to thank our great God. Um, but now it's my, uh, it's my joy to turn our attention to this new 13-week sermon series that we are beginning today, studying the first three chapters in the book of Genesis. Now you might ask, well, why are we doing this? Well, several years ago, when interviewing and assessing our first pastor elder, Dr. Casey Shutt, we asked him what doctrine he believed was under the greatest threat by the culture at the moment. And he answered rather quickly, and he said, the doctrine of creation. And I was kind of shocked by that, and all the assessors were kind of shocked by that. But coming uh, now years later, we find out he was exactly right. Here we are a few years later, and many churches have stepped away from the historic Christian faith and teaching on creation. And when you step away from our biblical origins, you inevitably lose your moorings. Now, many churches have done this in the name of being gospel-centered or Jesus-centered in a desire to reach those outside of the faith. So they don't want to talk about controversial things like the biblical view of sex or gender or marriage or family. They just want to focus on the gospel, just focus on redemption, just focus on Jesus. Now, here's why that's a major problem. If you get creation wrong, you can't get the gospel right. Okay? If you get creation wrong, it's almost going to be inevitable. You get almost everything else wrong. You're going to, if you start off in a bad position, you're going to end up in a bad position. Okay? You've got to get the beginnings right if you're going to get the end or the middle right. Think about this. Who is God? How did we get here? What are we here for? What is the meaning of life? How can I live a good life? What's wrong with the world and can anything make it right? 
These are some of the most important questions of life, and you cannot answer them without studying our origins. So that's what we're going to do over the next three months. Now, I think that these, some of these sermons are going to be the most important sermons I've ever preached. And so um, let me pray for us, and let's jump in and get started over Genesis 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 1. Let's get going this morning. Father God, we thank you for being a God who's so much bigger than we can actually understand and and, uh, grasp. We thank you for being a God who's active in our church and active in our lives. Right now, we want to come before you and say, man, we really want to know you. We want to think clearly about you, think rightly about you. And we can't do that unless you reveal yourself to us. And so, God, I say right now as, as a preacher and as a man that I am a sinner and I am finite and I can't grasp you and I can't communicate you clearly. And so I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that your people would hear from you this morning, that you would be real to your people in this room. Expand our vision of you. Expand our understanding of you. Change our minds. Change our hearts. Awaken us to who you really are. Would you do this for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you see, the Bible, it's a very big book, but it starts in an audacious way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Unlike any other religion that I know of, The Bible does not try to tell us where God came from. It does not try to convince us of the reality of God. It simply states, in the beginning, God. Why? Because every single person in the history of the world should know that God is real. That God is there. Why? Because belief in a personal God is both natural and normal. It has been a part of every single human civilization since the dawn of time. In fact, it is unbelief that requires enormous effort. To believe in creation without a creator defies logic itself. So the Bible makes no effort at trying to convince us that God is real. It just assumes that everyone already knows that. If there is a you, you had a beginning and you had a creator. If there is a book, there has to be an author. It actually takes a special kind of faith to believe that everything we see around us magically appeared on its own out of nothing. From my point of view, you would need at least three miracles to believe this. Number one, you would have to believe that matter could create itself spontaneously. Then miracle number two, that inanimate matter would have to create life out of non-life spontaneously and miraculously. And then you would need a third miracle. You would need that lower form of life to create a conscious person. In other words, personhood would have to come from non-personhood. So matter coming from non-matter, right? Life from non-life and personhood from non-personhood. You would need at least three miracles to believe the myth of the Big Bang and the theory of evolution. And that would require at least three unrepeatable miracles, and it takes far too much faith for me to believe in that. 
Instead, I believe what the scripture teaches. The Bible begins with God. God is being itself. He is reality. He is the uncreated creator. Before time was a thing, before anything else existed, God was. So before we can really study the doctrine of creation, we must first study the doctrine of God. And let me just tell you, that's no easy task, okay? We're, we're going we're gonna to tread where angels fear to tread today, okay? We're going to get into some deep stuff and it's going to take some, some thinking this morning. Because before we attempt to study God, we must come to the realization that it is impossible for us to completely know God. Let me uh, show you some quotes from some guys a lot smarter than I am, some old dead theologians here. Herman Bavinck says this, the distance between God and us is the gulf between the infinite and the finite, between eternity and time, between being and becoming, between the all and the nothing. Oh, okay, that sounds simple. Let's do that today, right? That's how big of a God we're trying to understand today. Here's another one from Athanasius. He says, God transcends all being and human comprehension. Albert the Great said, quote, he can be touched, but not grasped by our comprehension. So we're just going to try, that's our goal today. We're going to try to touch the reality of God, not comprehend him, just touch him. And then again, Bavink says again, quote, there is no name that fully expresses his being. No definition that captures him. He infinitely transcends our picture of him, our ideas of him, our language concerning him. He is not comparable to any creature. And it's my job to explain that, right? It's, it's pretty hard, all right? It's pretty hard. Now, theologians have called this, this idea the incomprehensibility of God incomprehensibility. Not that we can't know some things about him for certain, but we can never know everything about God. We can know some things about him, but we can never know everything about him. He is too much for us to grasp. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it like this, quote, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So we can only know about God the things that God has revealed to us about himself. All right? We cannot know him exhaustively. We can only know what he chose to reveal to us. And how has God chosen to reveal himself to us? Three ways. He's revealed himself to us in his world that he created in his word that he gave us in scripture, and in his son who he sent to this earth, Jesus Christ, right? So when we think about these things, what do we actually know about God? What do we actually know about God? I'm gonna get into some stuff here. Here we go. Are we ready? Can we go? 
Can we go? All right. I hope, hope, hopefully we can go this morning because we're going we're gonna to need the thinking caps on. First off, God is a triune spirit. The term Trinity was coined to describe a relationship, not of three gods, but of one God in three persons. The word Trinity is used as an effort to define the fullness of the Godhead, both in terms of his unity, he is one God, and his diversity, he is three persons in the one God. The Bible reveals these three persons as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we will see as we study the first two chapters of Genesis that all of them are present at creation. In our text today, the word God is Elohim in Hebrew. And that, is a, that word is plural. Some theologians believe that it's a reference to the royal we, but it also makes sense that it is referring to we as in all three persons of the Godhead. We also see when we're made in God's image, he says, God says to himself, let us make man in our image. Who is us? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we see in the very beginning that God exists as a triune being, a triune spirit, that the Father plans and wills, that the Son, we're told in John chapter 1, the Son is the Word of God that speaks everything into existence and everything is made through the Son and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. The Spirit is the one actually doing a lot of the work, bringing about God's plans. Now it's interesting, this also makes sense to us why love and community is so important to us, Right? We're not just like animals. There's something unique about us. We crave love. We crave community. Now, why is that the case? Because at the center of the cosmos is a loving relationship. God himself is love. Now, that would be impossible if God was just one. Without a triune spirit, who would he love? How can you be love without something to love? Right? There's, if God exists all by himself, there's nothing else to love. How could God be love? But since God is a spirit, God the Father has eternally loved the Son. God the Son has eternally loved the Father. And they, theologians often say that the spirit is the love that circulates between the two of them. This is why love is so important to us. And why we long for deep and meaningful community. Before there was anything else, this personal, triune, loving God existed before anything else. So there is a primacy to love. There's a primacy to this other-centered love. C.S. Lewis talks about this love between the Trinity being like a dance. And it's like a dance where like they don't, nobody wants to lead. They're like, you first, no, you first, no, you first, you first. They're other-centered. It's about loving the Father, and, or the Son loving the Father, and the Father loves the Son, and the Spirit's the love, and it's just this humble, self-giving relationship. You first, no, you first, no, you. And guess what? This means from the beginning of all things, God is eternally happy in himself. There's no, he's, there is no frustration in God. There is no sadness in God. There is no grief in God. God is happy. God is joyful because he exists in a perfect, loving relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is also, above all, why we want to know this God who made us. All of these 
desires in us point us back to the triune God. We want to find ourselves in God. We want to find a love like that. We want to find a joy like that. We want to find the ability to to be self-giving like that. See, in, in our reality, in our world, in our day and age, we want to get everyone else to focus on us, right? I want every driver on the road to look out for me. This is why I am the most self-righteous driver on the planet, right? I have no problem in parking lots just driving right through the parking spaces. But as soon as I catch somebody doing it, what are you doing? You can't go through there. You got to go around, right? Somebody doesn't use their blinker. Idiot. My son's like, you didn't use your blinker there. Whatever, (laughs) right? I want the world to revolve around me. I want the drivers to revolve around me. We want our homes to revolve around us. We want our workplace to revolve around us. We want our basketball teams to revolve around us. We want to take the game winning shot. We want everything to come back to us. And God is the exact opposite in the Trinity. It's about the other. It's about the son. It's about the father. It's about the spirit. It's a self-giving, humble, loving relationship. Next, we need to know That God is self-existent. Now, we don't think about this too often. What that means is that God is the only necessary being in the universe. If there was no God, there would be nothing else. And there could be nothing else unless there is a God. In the beginning, he existed all by himself and he had no beginning. This is also what makes Christianity distinct from every other religion in the world. Christianity teaches that there are two categories of being or existence. There is God who exists all by himself. And then there is creation that, was crea- that, was, that came from God and he sustains it in, in existence. Philosopher Peter Jones has called this belief twoism. Okay, twoism. There is God and there's creation, everything else. Think of it as two circles. In one circle is God and the other circle is creation and everything else. There is God all by himself, the uncreated eternal spirit, and then there is everything else, creation. Creation owes its existence to the creator. Creation must worship the creator. Now in this system, think about this. In in this, over in creation, all beauty, goodness, and truth are defined by outside of the system. So if you want to know what morality looks like, you look at the moral God. If you want to know what truth is, look to the truthful God. If you want to know what beauty is, look to the beautiful God. This is twoism, right? Now, every other worldview in the religion, listen, just draws one big circle and puts everything in there. Creation, that's all there is. The gods of these other religions all exist inside the circle. So you have Hinduism that says that all is spirit. And this world is actually not real at all. See, there's only one circle and everything, it explains everything inside that one circle by saying all is spirit. Or then you have, you can, you can have an atheistic worldview or what we would call naturalistic materialism that says, no, actually all that exists is matter, atoms, stuff, carbon. That's all that exists. See, it's oneism. There is no spirit. There is no God. Or you could think about, and literally every religion is in this, in this oneism category. You can think about the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. There was no truly one sovereign, uncreated creator that created, created all things. 
They were all, all of the gods of the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses were created from inside the system. So you have Poseidon, you have Zeus, you have all, you basically have natural phenomenon and you give them the name of gods. All of this, oneism, is always pagan. It's basically called paganism, and it always leads to idolatry. It's taking some part of creation and elevating it up into a god. Now listen, that can be reason, that can be sex, that can be demons, that can be angels, or that can be the earth itself. This oneism is the basic worldview of the Avatar movies. If you went and saw the Avatar movies, the Avatar movies basically teach that creation is divine. It's called pantheism or panentheism. God is in everything or all things lead to God. That God exists inside of creation. So what do they do? They worship the plants. Afraid to, oh, the trees are getting cut down. And they all cry and cut themselves and they'd rather kill people than kill trees, right? Why? Because creation itself is divine. So they worship the plants and animals and seek to be made one with them in life and in death. That is a form of oneism. The Bible teaches that, no, 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 no. And here's, here's another problem with, with, oh, I don't have very much time. Here's another problem with oneism, right? In oneism, all truth, beauty, and goodness is defined from within the system. So that means creation says, this is what I think is good. This is what I think is truthful. This is what I think is beautiful. Why is that a problem? That's a problem because human beings have a lot of different opinions about what is good, true, and beautiful, right? I won't get into that too much this morning. So here we see God is triune and God is self-existent. We, however, are contingent creatures. We owe all of our existence to God. If God could do such a thing and quit being God, we would not exist. Colossians 1 verses 15 through 17 teaches us this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God's invisible. He's spirit. Jesus is the image of him, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Look here. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him, in Jesus, in God, all things hold together. That means if God quit being God, we would disintegrate, right? So we are beginning to see that God is totally unique. The Bible calls this his holiness, his otherness. He is not like us, and in some ways, we can never be like him. Theologians often call this God's incommunicable attributes. Incommunicable. Things that God is like that we can never be like. The attributes of God that we cannot possess. And here are, here are a few. I'm going to explain it, okay? God's omnipotence, God's omnipresence, and God's omniscience. Let's break those down a bit. These are all things that we will never be because we are not gods. First off, God is omnipotent. That means God, the way the Bible usually describes this is God is almighty. That means that God is the most powerful being in the cosmos. No one can stop him. God does what he pleases, the psalmist tells us. Think about this. 
It took, man, this week I was, I got to go to Arizona for, for actually the first time in my life for an Acts 29 event. We were meeting with some other church planters and one day we went into Sedona and I got to ride mountain bikes. It was great. And then on the way home, we're going through the desert, the high desert. And we say, we say, let's pull over. I, I want to see the stars. Cause I haven't, I've never been out in the desert like this. I want to see the stars. And we got off on the side of the road and we, we got out and we looked up and it was just absolutely beautiful. Just creation. I mean, all the, you could see the Milky Way. You could see all kinds of stuff. And I was like, whoa. And here's the deal. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's what we should hear. In the beginning, God, <sighs> galaxies. It took no effort for God to create everything. He merely spoke it and galaxies burst out of his mouth. I mean, the ever-expanding universes and the cosmos came pouring out of God like a word comes pouring out of me. <laughs> right? It took no effort. That's how powerful God is. He merely spoke and everything came to be. But this does not mean that since God is all-powerful that God can do all things. Many a person, including my son, I remember coming back from school one day, stumped by the question, can God make a rock so big that he cannot pick it up? Now, if you say he can't, then he's obviously not all powerful. But if you say that he can, he can create one, but he can't pick it up, then again, he's not powerful, all powerful. Well, first off, let me tell you, this question is actually a false dilemma erected on a false premise. It's similar to, can God create a square four-sided triangle? It assumes that being all-powerful means that God can do anything. Well, the Bible specifically tells us that's not the case. The Bible says several things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot die. God cannot be eternal and created. He cannot be God and not God at the same time. God cannot contradict his nature or his will. God cannot create a four-sided triangle. But even though the question is a false dilemma, we can still answer it. Can God create a rock so big that he can't pick it up? No. God cannot create a rock so big that he cannot pick it up. Why? Because to do so would make something other than himself all-powerful. He would literally create something over which he had no power. So when we say that God is omnipotent, we need to qualify it by saying God can do all things that are in line with his nature and will. Now, to know that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, should be an amazing comfort to us as Christians. First, it tells us that nothing, if God wills something, nothing can stop him. That means it's God, nothing can stop God from saving us from our sins. If God wills to make all things new and to recreate this universe and to give us a new heavens and a new earth, no one can stop his plans. And in the midst of our broken and fallen world, it's also comforting to know that there is nothing outside of his power and control. R.C. Sproul says it like this, quote, 
We know that no part of creation can frustrate God's plans for the future. Listen to this. There are no maverick molecules loose in the universe that could possibly disrupt his plans. Though powers and forces of this world threaten to undo, we have no fear. That means everything that comes into our life has passed through the hands of God or passed through the will of God. It doesn't mean that God, or, that God necessarily sent them to us, right? We have, a, uh, we have an enemy out there, but it says if it comes through us, it's got God's approval. It's got God's blessing, and he's going to meet us there in it. There are no maverick molecules that there are, you know, cancer isn't something that's outside of God's control. Car accidents aren't outside of God's control. Viruses aren't outside of God's control. There are no maverick molecules in the universe. God is almighty. That means no matter how difficult your life circumstances are at the moment, God can change them. He can move mountains. No matter how lost you may feel, God can save you and deliver you from any fear. But there's another aspect of God that is also meant to give us comfort. God isn't just almighty, omnipotent. He's also omnipresent. That word means he's everywhere. Now, this is just hard to communicate. Okay, let me just tell you this. This is hard to communicate. Omnipresent means that God is everywhere, present, all at the same time. Because God is spirit, he is not limited by space. He is equally present at all places. In other words, there is no place you can go to get away from his presence. And he's not like some kind of gas that if a gas goes off in here and it spreads and dissipates, it gets less intense or it's, it's, you know, it's, it's less strong in some places other than others. No, God is fully present everywhere all at the same time. Now, first, this is great news for Christians. This means that we can always be certain to have God's undivided attention. It's been said that men are not good multitaskers. I confirm that reality and confirm that. Somebody texts me, I get an email, something's happening on my phone, and there's something in the background that says, and then I hear a voice that a little bit louder than all others saying, Justin, they've said your name five times. That's usually my wife, and oh, oh, uh, right? My attention is divided, right? It's hard to get my attention when I'm focused on something else. God is not like that. Yeah personally present to every single one of us. Hears every groan, hears every word of every prayer, sees every tear. God is that present to us. All at the same time. For believers walking through difficult seasons of life, Psalm 23 has been one of the most comforting Bible verses and is one of the most memorized poems in the history of the world. And it says this, written by David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
Now, first off, we're talking about the other holy God here who's outside of creation and separate and divine and all these different things. And David's like, he's my shepherd. He's not just transcendent, he's also imminent. He comes near, he's omnipresent. The shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures. Oh, to have a God that makes us take naps. What a gracious God. He leads me beside still waters. You need to chill out, bro. Come with me. He restores my soul. The gods inside the system, all they demand is more, more, more. Work harder. Sacrifice more. Do more. Be more. Go more. They never give you rest. The God outside the system restores your soul. This is why we're so depressed. This is why we're so anxious. This is why we're so fearful. We're worshiping something inside the system and not the gracious creator outside the system. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Hear this. The blessing of Christianity is not that everything will go better in your life. The blessing of Christianity is not follow Jesus and then everything is going to go well for you. You'll never get sick. You'll never have a difficult season at work. Your kids will never be rebellious. The Bible doesn't promise that. Here's the blessing of Christianity. No matter what you go through, God is present with you in it. His presence will be your comfort. And he's not just some dumb shepherd, right? He's the omnipotent shepherd. But as much of a blessing this reality is to the believer, it's equally as terrifying to the non-believer. It means that there is no place you can go to get away from God's presence. You can deny him all you want. You can live like he isn't real and you can break his commandments as much as you want. But God is actively present to you and one day upon your death, you will stand before him to be judged. Even hell itself is not absent from the presence of God. God is just there only in his wrath and justice to judge sinners for their unbelief and rebellion. David goes on in Psalm 139 to say this in verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? See, here's the problem. You know, marriage, I'll just tell you, marriage is difficult. Parenting is hard. And sometimes you just need some time away, right? I'm going to the coffee shop. I'm going to go for a run, right? And you just leave everything in the hands of God and you just take off, right? Here's the problem. If you have a problem with God, where are you going to run? This is what David says. You can't get away from him. He's everywhere. Listen, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, Sheol, you're there. If I take on the wings of the morning, that means if I go all, if you're looking at, if you're on the, if you're at the beach and you're looking out and you see the sun coming up and the sun, sunrise is spreading over 
the horizon. That's the wings of the morning. And he says, if I go way out there, you're there. If I, look, dwell in the utter, uttermost parts of the sea. Well, we know this is true because Jonah put it to the test. Jonah said, God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. Jonah said, nah, I'm getting on a boat and I'm getting out of here, right? Wind and waves and everything happens. And what do they say? Jonah's like, crap, it's me, it's my fault. God came after me way out here. I can't run away from him. And they said, what do you want us to do? Throw me overboard. <laughs> They're like, are you sure about this plan? He's like, obviously God's here, so he's probably going to take care of me. Throw him overboard. Whale. <laughs> whale takes him up. And guess what? In the belly of a whale, you know what Jonah found? God's presence. He's brought to repentance. He remembers the temple. He remembers the sacrifice. He remembers how stupid he was for trying to get away from God. And God has that whale and spits him up on dry land. And God says, Nineveh, plan A. I'm not changing my mind. And Jonah reluctantly goes to Nineveh and says, God's going to probably judge all of you morons. And they all say, we repent. And Jonah's like, whoa, okay. God, a revival shows up like this. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, just like he did with Jonah, and your right hand shall hold me. There's nowhere you can go to get away from God. Maybe you should stop running. Listen, you can go to the most liberal college you want and they can try to convince you of all these different reasons that you can do what you want and you, do, you are your own and you have no maker and you know, owe no one anything. You can run as far as you want. But that's like holding a five foot beach ball under the water in the ocean. You can do it maybe for a little while. It's going to take enormous effort to not believe in God. Most atheists that I believe live this philosophy. There is no God and I hate him. <laughs> it works for a little while. That's not the way God built the world. And that leads us to the third incommunicable attribute of God and that's God, God's omniscience. Omni means to have all, and or science means knowledge. So only God alone has all knowledge because God alone is infinite and eternal. God knows all things. He is aware of all things, all at the same time. He is able to comprehend all things. God never learns anything. God never grows in wisdom or understanding. God has always possessed all knowledge from all from the past and the future because God exists outside of time. That means God is never surprised by anything. This is one of the many Christians believe that God somehow gets surprised at their sinfulness. Before God created you in your mother's womb, he knew every sin you were ever going to com 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 commit. God is not surprised by any of your foolishness. Nothing surprises God. God knows all because he created all. He wills all. He is sovereign over all. And there is not one square inch of all creation that God does not know and claim as his. And that includes us. God's knowledge 
is a two-edged sword. It's comforting because he would not be God if he wasn't all-knowing, right? He wouldn't be God if we got to him and we were like, God, you know, I need help in my marriage. And he's like, I don't know. She's a tough one, dude. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's not the God you want to follow and serve. If there were things he didn't know, then he couldn't control the future. And he couldn't bring about our salvation or the new heavens and the earth, new earth that he's promised to us. So that's the blessing that God's all knowing. But it's also terrifying because it means that he knows everything about us as well. Every thought, every motive, every sin we have committed. Think about this, combined with his omnipresence. Not only does he know it, he was present when we did it. See, in this world, before the last judgment, there will only be imperfect justice at best because no judge is all-knowing. They must rely on the evidence or the testimony of witnesses but in the last judgment, when we all stand before God, God will call no witnesses because he already knows all. He was present at every single one of our life's moments. And so his judgment is completely, penetratingly just and righteous and perfect. He knows exactly what we deserve. See, these attributes of God are what make him holy, different, other than us. He is perfectly good and true and beautiful. He's almighty and all-knowing and omnipresent to all of his creation. Now, this reality is meant to inspire awe and great humility in us. Does it? Does it inspire awe in us? Right? Some of us get more excited about a new pair of shoes or a new video game or a little bit of raise on our paycheck than we do in the God who created all things. This is why we sing and why we worship when we come in here. God is worthy of it. You can never get to the end of him. I am just as passionate about reading and studying and learning the scriptures as I was when I got saved 25 years ago. And I know so much more than I knew back then, but I just can't get to the end of him. Every week I discover something new. I learn a new truth. I learn something deeper about it. And it, it's just the thrill of my life to go to the scriptures, to find something there, to come out and just to, to enjoy it myself and then to put it out for you guys to enjoy. God is infinite in his beauty. But the holiness of God is also meant to humble us. Before I knew that God was holy like this, I used to think of my sins as rather little mistakes that my mom and dad really overreacted about. I know I told a lie. All my friends do, mom. What's the big deal? 
See, what I would do is I would look at my circle of friends and go, I just don't want to be the worst one in this bunch. As long as I wasn't, I felt pretty good about myself. You know what I mean? Look at that guy. What a screw up. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said this, quote, there are no little sins because there is no little God to sin against. Think about that. Almost any sin becomes greater by committing it against someone important. If you lie to me, I can't really do anything about it. I might not even know it. But if you lie to a judge under oath, you can go to prison for it. If you smack me across the face in the foyer, we might have a tussle. Probably would. I'm not that sanctified. But if you smack the president of the United States of America across the face, you would probably get a prison sentence. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, said this, all sin is actually cosmic treason against the rightful ruler of the universe. Cosmic treason. Think about that. All of us stand condemned before God for the sin or crime of cosmic treason. We have all rebelled against God and, sent and sought to walk our own way. <clears throat> now, if you don't know who God is, if you don't know that he's like this, that he's holy, so many people I meet have this idea of God as just some white guy in the sky with a big white beard. And all he wants is for us to be good little boys and girls. And he's just judging on a scale of, did you, did, were you a serial killer? No? Well, then come on in. See, if you don't know who God is, that he's holy, omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful, you don't know what he's like in his nature and character, you will never understand the good news of the gospel. You have offended this holy God. You have committed cosmic treason against this holy God. And there is only one way for you to be reconciled to him. See, even though God is holy and we have sinned against him and fallen short of the glory of God, God has made a way for us to be forgiven and made righteous in his sight. Remember when I said that God has always been a loving, self-giving community? So what that means is when God, when we sinned against God, just like he does with Adam, God wasn't like a king who demanded us come and grovel at his steps and now I'm going to give you everything you must do to be saved. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He pursued them in the garden. And that shows us what God always does. God comes down. God humbles himself. God pursues us. Think about that. When we sin and rebel against God, he comes to save us. He comes to us to save us. The Holy One who is outside of his creation chose to enter into it. I can't get my mind around this, but this is similar. Now listen, God spoke creation out of nothing. We can't do that. But if you go to my house, I've got a lot of kids, and so I've got a lot of Legos. And here's one reality. I, this is what helps me get... This, this picture in my mind. I go to my kids' 
Lego set and I build a little home and I build a little Lego world, right? And then somehow I incarnate myself into the, I become a little Lego man. I lose my knees, obviously, right? And I become a Lego man. I create something and then I inhabit that something. And inside that little world, I then die for other Lego people. Now, I can't get my mind around that, but this is equivalent to what God has done. The second member of the eternal trinity came to this earth and was conceived in a woman's womb. He became a Lego. Jesus was the God-man. That means he was always God, but added to his divinity humanity. He was holy like God, but then put on flesh like us. Think about it. His words created the cosmos, but he chose to humble himself and enter into the world he made. He came and lived the life that we all should have lived. He never committed even one sin. He always glorified God and enjoyed him forever. But instead of living that perfect life and then demanding that all of creation fall down at his feet and worship him as the God-man, Jesus chose to do the one thing that could save us from the consequences of our many sins. Jesus went before the judge, the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful judge for us. He took our sins upon himself and stood condemned before God, the righteous judge. It was on the cross that Jesus exchanged places with us. He took our punishment so that we could be delivered from the bondages of death and hell. Jesus died for us. Then three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead proving that he was the holy God-man who takes away the sins of the world. John 3.16 and 17 says it like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, in Jesus, we see what God's like. We see that God is holy. He doesn't overlook sin. We see that God is just. Every sin deserves death. We see that God is almighty. He can defeat death, hell, sin, and the grave. And he is making all things new by redeeming the world. But we also see his humility, his love, his other-centeredness, his goodness in taking our place on the cross. Jesus shows us what God looks like in the flesh. That's good news for us because at the center of the cosmos is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The one who came for us, lived for us, died for us, rose for us, and is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God right now until he comes again to make all things new. That's why we're here. And so if you've never put your faith in this God, what are you waiting for? 
There is no other religion on the planet like it. There's a lot of religions, and they're all in here. Take some aspect of creation and worship it. One aspect of creation exalted above all others. Only Christianity has the uncreated creator who entered into his creation to die for you. Every other religion, do this to be saved by God. In Christianity, this is what God has done to save you. Will you believe it? Buddha on his deathbed said, strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. Jesus hanging on the cross said, it is finished. What do you want? What do you want? If you already are a believer this morning, we get to come and we get to celebrate a meal that Jesus prepared for us. It's a sacrament. And one of the, one of the things this does, it looks back to Jesus' death, but it also looks forward to the, 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 the uh, wedding supper of the lamb that we will have when Jesus comes back, where we will eat with him and drink with him again. And so what does that remind us? Is that, that Christian, that reminds us no matter what you're going through today, Jesus is with you. No matter how difficult you're the season of life you're in, Jesus is with you. This meal is a reminder that God is present to you, that Jesus is present with you. When you eat it, it comes and literally becomes a part of your body. And it's, it's, it's going, and that's as, that's as close to, as Jesus is to you right now. As you swallow that bread and drink that wine, Jesus is that real to you. Jesus is that close to you. He's in you and sustaining you until we meet again next week. Let me pray for us. Father God, whew, you are outstanding. There is nothing we want to know more than you. There is no reality we want to experience more than you. And we often feel distant. We often feel like you're far away. We often, the reality of your presence isn't always this manifest to us. But now in this moment, I pray by your spirit that people would feel your presence. And as they come and take the elements this morning, as they swallow that bread and that wine, they would be aware that you are that real and that close to them. That they are eating and drinking the body and the blood of Christ that is spiritually present with them. We know that we cannot be saved by anything other than Jesus Christ, and so we put all of our faith and hope in you. Thank you for sending your son, dying for us, and raising us up with him in Christ. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.